and welcome to the Real Weird Podcast, October 15th on Folk Horror. Hey everyone, welcome back. So, if your stomachs have finally settled from Herschel Gordon Lewis films, <laughs> then we're going to be talking about a subgenre that I've really come to take a like to myself recently. Uh, we're talking about folk horror. Now, as with a lot of uh, media genres and any sort of media, whether that be uh, books, m- books, TV shows, comics, etc. The genre is kind of nebulous. Tends to go on a sort of note when you see it. But generally what films considered to be folk horror share in common general characteristics is that it's usually a very uh, rural or countryside setting. It's instead of like standard um, cross-cultural, you know, monster imagery, it tends to be something that's very, very localized. Like, okay. So I guess the best way to explain it would be if there was a folk horror movie taking place in Scotland, it might have Crete that it might generally revolve around creatures from like Scottish folklore. Uh, Or, you know, if this took place in, you know, Eastern Europe, if you could also make an argument that a vampire movie set in Eastern Europe could be considered folk horror if it followed the more, uh, you know, traditional folklore um, instead of the sort of like pop culture image of vampires. Uh, usually the person involved is kind of an, the people involved as main characters are kind of outsiders generally, although that's not like a hard and fast rule because that can go for a lot of genres of horror. But essentially these are you know, it's definitely one of those know-it-when-you-see-it type genres. It usually revolves around, you know, the power of nature, sort of a darker uh, capital R romantic image going on. Uh, like, to give you one, like, early example, there was a Finnish horror film in the 50s called The White Reindeer, where um, basically there's a spurned bride who's turned into a vampiric reindeer. Yeah, I <laughs> I kind of want to watch it just off that description. The But that's basically the image. If it's sort of like a weird sort of monster that seems like really specific and the whole and it's generally kind of more like ambient then it's usually folk horror if it's set in like a rural setting um three british made films um are usually cited as the like origin of uh modern folk horror is the blood on satan's claw 
from 1971, the original Wicker Man from 1973, and Witchfinder General from 1968. They all have a very like nihilistic tone, and they have a sort of rural countryside setting. And this was around the time that like you know the sort of hippie counterculture and new age movements were coming out. And I wouldn't necessarily say it was like a reaction to it, but it was definitely like an influence. Because it has that sort of, like, power of nature element coming in, but it's just in a much darker way than, you know, we associate with the hippies. Uh, There tends to be a lot of, you know, occultism going on. You know, like, secret cults out in the countryside that worship some obscure, like, nature spirit, for example. And this isn't necessarily restricted to Europe. There's a bunch of ones from Malaysia, like Satan's Slaves, Munafik, Rol. And, well, that's basically, appropriately enough for a genre that's particularly heavy on the whole atmosphere thing, that's the admittedly somewhat vague outline of folk horror. So what I want to do today is with that little preamble out of the way, I want to go through a few that I think are good examples of the genre and just give my, you know, two cents on each of them. I could go into a lot more detail with a couple of these, but I don't think I could without spoiling anything. So first up, and this is a completely biased pick, and I do not care, is The Witch by Robert Eggers, his director's debut. And I am biased because, one, I like this guy as a filmmaker, and two, he's from, his hometown is very nearby to my own, so I gotta give some credits to a local guy representing New Hampshire very well. But, (laughs) it takes place in 1630s. I'm going to assume it's, like, in Massachusetts Bay Area, round about there, because it is called a New England fairy tale, and I think New England folktale as the tagline, and I think the only other major English colonies around North America at the time were, like, down in Virginia. But we follow the... in this family. We've got uh, William, who is the father of the house, uh, his wife, Catherine, their eldest daughter, Thomason, who's played by Anya Taylor-Joy, um, the oldest son, Caleb, the twins, Mercy and Jonas, and the infant, Samuel. And essentially, they get exiled from a Puritan colony over some kind of religious dispute. We don't really get much detail as to what exactly that was all about. But they go out, and they set up a new farm near a secluded clearing in a nearby forest, and they attempt to sort of eke out a living over their farming But what happens is, in addition to just the general, you know, stress of having to be an isolated farmer, you know, outside the protection of the Puritan colony, but, you know, not necessarily living with the natives, and just the general hard work and repetitive routine of the whole thing, Um, one day, Thomason is caring for Samuel, the little baby, the infant. 
and, you know, she has a little break in her work, so she starts playing peekaboo with him, and then he just disappears. And, like, we see, like, she didn't even really do anything. We as the audience see that. She's about to... She's about to do it again, and then she opens and realizes Samuel's just disappeared in, like, the split second that she had her eyes covered. And in addition to all that, part of the other is just... In addition to all that, part of the other te- rest of the tension is just, again, the difficulty of just general life at the time, especially when you have to be just on your own family. It's also just the fact that Thomason is, you know, you see this a lot with, like, um, characters in later settings, but same kind of geographic locale. You know, it's the kind of bored-in-your-small-town kind of teenage rebellion. She wants something more than what life with her family can offer her. She wants worldly things. She wants control over her own life. The thing is, you know, she's a young woman, and she she's a woman. She's a young woman at that, and she's in a Puritan colony in the 1630s. There's not a lot of there's not a lot of ways that she can have any sort of control over her life. And honestly, looking at history, the only option she'd really have is to just fuck off into the woods and hope the natives would take her in. But you know, that's not a guarantee. And, you know, her mother kind of blames her for Samuel's disappearance, not really based on anything, just because she was the last person to see him. And Thomason resents this especially because she's shouldering most of the farm work aside from what her parents are doing. And from there, it just kind of spirals out of control. Um... Yeah, so usual disclaimer, this is one of those very atmospheric films. It's a very, very slow burn. Um, and like, I got to give credit just on the filmmaking first off, because like when you watch this movie, the only like artificial light you see is candlelight. Like Eggers did everything he could to avoid you know, showing the hand of, like, modern set design in the movie. Everything in that film looks like how it should for the location and the time period, given the tech that they had. And it's just bonfires and candlelight, and everything else is just natural ambient lighting. I'm sure they... I think they might have, like, color-corrected a few things here and there, but, you know, the, the fact that he went so far to avoid to, like, help with the immersion. And I think this was another one of the complaints that a lot of people had was that they had difficulty understanding it. Like, like I'm a native English speaker, and the first time it did kind of throw me for a loop, but again, it's the 1630s. They're not going to talk like we do today, not in the U.S. and not even in Britain, where a lot of these people came from. But, you know, if... English is not your first language. Maybe it would be a good idea to, like, have subtitles on for your first viewing. You know, just in case you're, like, one of those people who can, like, read English better than you can, like, hear it. 
The music is appropriately very minimalist, but it still does add to the general tone of the movie here and there. It's it's wallpaper, basically. It doesn't ever govern how you're supposed to feel about that scene. The movie does that on its own. It just, the music's just there to heighten the experience. But this is a movie about subtext. This is a movie about the subtext, basically. And this is definitely one of those ones where you have to, you as the audience member have to be engaged, you have to be paying attention, because, you know, the script is not going to spoon-feed you the story here. You actually need to be paying attention. So, and it, it does, it gives you enough, I feel, to piece things together, but... You know, I get that a lot of people might be put off by it. And look, this is one of those ones where I understand if you don't like it, but just give it a shot and don't dismiss this as pretentious, because if you say that, then frankly, I think you are pretentious 99% of the time. This is a very well-made movie. If you don't like it, that's fine, but just give it a chance, all right? Just don't go in expecting jump scares and all of that, because there's very little to any of that. And again, with full core as a whole, that is the general tone that they go for. So moving on for something a bit more conventional as far as horror goes is the second oldest movie on this list is Eyes of Fire. Follows a preacher and his family and followers. They've been run out of town due to accusations of the uh, preacher being an adulterer. And... The preacher and his followers take supplies with them and flee downriver. After a small number of setbacks and a skirmish with the local natives, they settle into a section of the forest that appears to have, again, a sort of supernatural presence lurking in it, so much to the point where the like the natives, uh, the Shawnee tribes, they won't even go in there. Uh, this is definitely... I did love one of the kind of amusing reviews of it, even if it wasn't necessarily a positive review. It's like the book version of Scarlet Letter jumped into the future and had a crossover with The Exorcist. Because there's the theme of, you know, being isolated from the group, especially given the fact that this was religious differences. Um, there's the whole uh, sort of, like, subtext of... Uh, Christian theology in a lot of places, but it's married with the um, the local folklore. And when I say local folklore, I do mean the native ones, because uh, Marion, who's a fur trapper, he's had dealings with them in the past. And there's this scene where he's sitting around a campfire with the others and explaining to them why the natives don't want to go in this area. There's this big tree that has a bunch of, like, random white... That's, a, that's just covered in these white feathers. And he explains to them that, to the natives, that's a devil tree. Now, full disclosure, I don't know if this is an actual thing. I haven't studied Native American mythology very well. But we'll just roll with it for the sake of this movie. And the way he explains it is that the natives have their own version of the devil... The devil isn't some demon living in some other place. The devil is the collective ill will that happens when innocent blood is shed. You know, the natives understand sometimes you got to kill to eat. 
the mantis has to eat the fly, the fox, the wolf has to eat the rabbit, and occasionally humans have to kill the bison. But that's fine because that's just trying to survive themselves. But when it's done out of malice or when you kill when you don't need to, that spirit goes into the ground and eventually they pool with the others until it becomes some sort of malicious entity that can act on its own. And that's basically the the monster in this movie. But again, that whole thing is told in a very oblique way through a set of surreal and kind of bizarre events that happen to the party as they try to, you know, make their own little compound where they can live. Uh, this one is on on Shudder, at least if you live in North America. I think it's available to rent on Vudu for like $3. And, and I'm really happy about this. After like decades of being very inconsistently available on home video, I'm pretty sure uh, Severin Films has a, a 4K restoration as of December 2021. I could be wrong about the label, but I'm pretty sure that one of those, you know, film nerd labels has has a copy of it that you can buy. So moving on to the most recent on this list is Midsummer. Second movie ever by Ari Aster was originally supposed to be a more straight-laced uh, slasher movie. Ari Aster got the idea for the final draft after going through a bad breakup. So, you know, if you haven't seen it, I'll try to avoid the spoilers again as much as possible, but so Florence Pugh is playing this young woman who accompanies her boyfriend and some uh, mutual friends to a trip to a sort of commune in Sweden, and one of them has, like, a friend there. Uh, I believe his name is Peter. It's been a while since I actually... Uh, watch the movie, full disclosure. I just haven't had a lot of free time to rewatch everything. But, you know, he welcomes them to it for, you know, their midsummer festivities. And, you know, it's it's very much a Wicker Man movie, like the original one. Everyone's very welcoming. It's more just the fact that as the movie goes on, you notice a lot more and more, you know, cult-type shit going on. Um, and just the general sort of, like, way it breaks you down. And I've, you know, not giving anything away for the ending if you haven't seen it, but, you know, there's a lot of people who kind of misinterpreted the ending. i just going to say this. It's a bizarre ending... And I think a lot of people misinterpret it as to how it's supposed to be presenting what happens, but it's just a great example, honestly, and a very realistic one of how cults bring people in. And, you know, I don't want to get into this, but, like, I had to, I had a cousin who we had to deprogram, basically. So, you know, very, very relatable horror in that sense. And it's really just... It's especially eerie because, you know, you have the horror cliches of, you know, the dark room, you know, the lights suddenly going off in the basement. Now, here in Midsummer, like, everything is, every single horror scene aside from, like, the very beginning 
where we're supposed to see like the trauma of the main character from her sister's death. Like that's a cold winter night. The rest of the movie is bright and sunny. It's literally in mid. It's almost literally midday for most of it, except for like a couple kind of dimmed scenes that are supposed to be nighttime. Because this is like the part in Sweden where it's not quite the midnight sun, as far as I know, but the days are still super long. Like, it's maybe four hours of darkness when it's at, you know, the peak of summer. So yeah, it's released by A24. It's the most recent one on the list today. You can probably find it all over... Uh, you can probably find physical copies basically everywhere. I don't exactly know off the top of my head where you can stream it. I would assume maybe Hulu or Netflix. More than likely Hulu does, but I don't know about Netflix. Now this next one does have... I can say for certain that it is on Netflix. It's only on Netflix as far as I know. Is Apostle. So, you know, second newest... It takes place in 1905. We have this, you know, rich man's prodigal son, Thomas Richardson. He's returning home, and he goes to a remote, to a remote Welsh island to rescue his kidnapped sister from a cult. And he gets there, and he quickly begins to suspect there is a more sinister force at play here. Uh, he's noticing how people seem to go missing and he's noticing the malformed livestock being born. And, you know, just to give you a hint, this isn't like the usual kind of, you know, pre-hip, pre-60s cult where it's just a section of an established religion that just believes something different. This is like its own thing. It's It's very much Christian in its presentation, but not in its belief system, if that makes any sense. Uh... Like, from the outside, it's a dreary place, but everyone is just kind of, you know, living a very humble, almost sort of like Amish existence, aside from the boatman who has, like, a motorized boat to ferry stuff from the mainland and back. Um, but yeah, it's got a pretty good cast. It's directed by Gareth Evans. Uh, a lot of people might know him from the Raid movies, you know, the that Indonesian like crime action films. Uh Lee guy is being played by Dan Stevens. Uh anyone that's seen The Guest might recognize him. Uh he also played the prosecutor in uh Marshall, the Chadwick Boseman movie. We've also got Paul Higgins, uh Anyone who's seen The Thick of It, you know, the British, like, sitcom with uh, Peter Capaldi on it, he played, uh, he played Jamie on that series. And we've also got Lucy Boynton, of all people, from one of my favorites, one of my favorite recent horror films, The Black Coat's Daughter, which I may end up talking about at some point in the future, but no promises. So, yeah, uh, it's a little over two hours, um... Go in just read just knowing what I've told you here today and just go on Netflix, at least if you're in the U.S. All right, next up, this one is on Shudder and Hulu off the top of my head. is called A Field in England. It's directed by Ben Wheatley, who also directed 
Sightseers, and Kill List, as well as In the Earth, which is a more recent folk horror movie that I talked about in one of my Dispatch episodes. And A Field in England follows a group of deserters during the English Civil War, so 1640s for those that don't know. And they're captured by an alchemist named O'Neill, a soldier named Cutler who works for O'Neill, and they get coerced into aiding O'Neill with some sort of experiment. And to do this, he needs a sort of hidden treasure, and it's hidden in a large circle of mushrooms in a nearby field. And again, as happens with a lot of folk horror, it is just sort of a descent into madness from there on out. My only real complaint here is that I normally like slow burn art films, but this is, it's more art than film to me with this one. Aside from a few characters, um, parsing the motivations is difficult. Distinguishing between some of the minor characters is difficult, although there's not a lot of characters to keep track of. And the story is very, very freeform. That said, between the effects, the camera work, the black and white scenery, just the general atmosphere, it's a wonderful uh, film to watch. It's not necessarily story-heavy, but it's it, it's eerie in its own way, which is impressive given the sort of, like, I guess, ghostly beauty, you can say, of the English countryside as it's captured in the movie. So, yeah. Um, it is on Prime Video, Hulu, Shudder. Uh, if you don't mind the ads, it's on the Roku channel and Tubi for free as far as I know, when I'm writing this. And I'm pretty sure there's the YouTube channel Popcorn Flicks actually has the movie in its entirety on uh, the channel. So, you know, if you don't have any of those, might be worth checking that out before, you know, whoever holds the copyright for it just nukes that channel. (laughs) Anyway, now for the oldest one, and a bit curious in its own way, is V... I'm assuming that's how to pronounce it. It's romanized as V-I-Y. And to my knowledge, it's the only horror movie to be produced in the Soviet Union. V essentially means evil spirit, and it is kind of a hard film to describe. I suppose the best way I can explain it is that it follows three seminary students as they deal with the actions of an old woman who they believe to be a witch. Got a very dream again. It's got a very dreamlike state. It's very trippy music. It's got really odd camera work that actually freaked a lot of people out back when it was released. And all of it contributes to a building sense of dread, which is again, it's one of the key things with folk horror is that you're in the wilderness. There's some kind of weird, obscure monster based on local folklore that you don't really understand, and you're not really able to deal with. And, you know, the dread of having to deal with it is a big part of what constitutes the horror in films like this. So this one is on Shudder, as far as I know. I think it's on Tubi, if you don't mind putting up with the ads. So yeah, just give that a watch. Again, it's spelled V-I-Y, and I'm just going to assume V is how you pronounce it. And the last one... And an interesting little milestone in its own right, because as far as I know, this is the only, this is the first feature film to be produced entirely in a Native American language. 
I could be wrong about that, but at least for this specific language, that is true. We have Sagawe Kuna, which is translated from the Haida language of Western Canada as Edge of the Knife in English. So Edge of the Knife takes place in, you know, pre, uh, maybe not pre-colonization, but pre-industrialization of, oh no, wait, it is pre-colonization, I would assume anyway. We don't see anyone who's like not a Native American in the movie. But it takes place in Haida Gwaii region in Pacific Canada. And two close families come together for the winter. And in doing so, one of them accidentally causes the death of a young child, his nephew, as it turns out. And he flees into the woods to avoid the consequences of it. There, cut off from human interaction, he gradually devolves into the creature in Haida mythology known as the Gagishid. I'm probably butchering that pronunciation, but that's the best I could do. And Gagishid basically just means the wild man. And part of the drama going on is that, you know, it was his nephew that died. His sister, like, wants to, like, forgive... Forgive him, especially after finding out that he's still alive. But, you know, his brother-in-law... His brother-in-law wants to just flat-out kill him out of, you know, revenge for causing the death of his son, even if it was by an accident. The... As far as... And as far as the movie itself, the effects in the style, especially as uh, Gauss, I think his name is... the main character, he gradually just gets more and more feral, and whenever it's just him on screen, coupled with his acting style, the... The effects and the ambiance just get more and more distorted. And, you know, he does act like a wild animal. He, like, bites into a fucking sea urchin. Doesn't seem to mind that he's getting, like, spines stuck in his face in the process. But it's great attention to detail. It's period-appropriate costume and set design. They did their best to avoid the anachronisms of, like, a logging industry near the region. Um, yeah, it's really impressive, and I applaud the Haida Nation in Canada for being able to do this. It's a wonderful movie. And the fact that it's a very, like, local... The fact that it's a very localized legend, the fact that it's something specific to the one, this one particular culture, it doesn't feel like a barrier to enjoy the movie, which is sometimes, like, a risk that you take with, you know, marketing... Uh, folk horror movies outside their sort of cultural sphere. Like, I love some of the Malaysian horror movies I've seen, uh, but I only really know about some of this stuff because I looked it up afterwards. Um, like To give you one example, there's this older one called Mystics in Bali, and there's a creature called the Penangalan, which is sort of like a vampire, sort of like a witch, only what happens is at night, instead of going out and, like, prowling around, their head sort of detaches and then just floats around with its guts trailing after it. 
And sometimes in some versions of the myth, they'll like go around and like suck the fetuses out of, you know, pregnant women. And, you know, to someone who grew up with like stories like that, that makes a little more sense, or at least it's not quite as bizarre, but you know, you're not from that area and you don't know about this. You're like, what the fuck is going on? I mean, it's definitely still a creepy concept, but still. But yeah, that's the little selection of folk horror, folk horror movies I brought for you today. Um, I haven't seen this one myself, but I also wanted to give a shout out because I am going to watch it as soon as I get the time. It's called Folk, sorry, Woodlands Dark and Days Bewitched, which is a sort of uh, three-plus-hour documentary on the history of folk horror and its roots. So if you want to get a little bit more of a deep dive, I'd, I'd tentatively recommend that. I'm only saying tentatively because I haven't watched it myself, but I've heard really good reviews about it. So tomorrow we're going to be going for something a little more mainstream, a little more influential, but we're also going to be talking about some of his lesser-known stuff because we will be talking about the late, great George A. <laughs> I hope you'll be listening tomorrow. Have a good night. Signing off.